Last week we had a big topic which was justification and um, that's probably um, the biggest topic we had remaining until we get to the very end which is last things. We get to eschatology, that, that one's also going to be a big one. Um, to, tonight's um, topic, we'll, we'll start with the local church. This might take the entire time or we might be able to cover more than that. Um, but we're on Article 12 of the Statement of Faith, which is the local church. Um, this is, I'll say this, uh, this is um, uh, the, the doctrines of the church are often um, not well understood by the average Christian. And, and especially for those who don't engage in the church, there are many who... Um, who will claim claim to be Christians, claim to be believers, um, but they don't attend any church, you know, and they feel completely content with that. And there are some that will even argue um, that there is no biblical basis for a local gathering um, of believers. I've, I have, I've actually met people that know the Bible very well and will somehow um, try to argue that the Bible does not um, argue for a local gathering. Um, but this morning sermon. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and this this is in many ways tied to, I think, this morning's uh, sermon. Um, so it's it's a good um, it's certainly a good lesson based upon what we studied this morning. So let's take a look at Article 12. Um, Article 12. We'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll take a look at each of the individual statements and see if there are any comments or questions, and try to determine where we would get that, um, get these beliefs. So it starts off: We believe that a local church is a congregation of baptized believers associated by a covenant of faith and fellowship of the gospel observing the ordinances of Christ governed by his laws and exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word. That its officers are pastors and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are clearly defined in the scriptures, that the true mission of the church is the edification of the saints and the faithful witnessing about Christ to all men as we may have opportunity. We hold that the local church has the absolute right of self-government, free from the interference of any hierarchy of any individuals or organizations, and that the one and only superintendent is Christ through the Holy Spirit. That is That it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other in contending for the furtherance of the gospel, that each local church is the sole judge of the measure and method of its cooperation, that on all matters of membership, polity, government, discipline, and benevolence, the will of the local church is final. There's a lot of people that uh, kind of rebel against this idea of, um, uh, of an organized body. Um, in fact, I've, I've been at churches where they'll have a Sunday service, not in a building, but they'll say, let's go out to the streets um, and, and, uh, and, and meet with um, the poor on the streets, the people who are homeless, and our church service is going to be out amongst them. Um, and, and what they do for that Sunday morning is that they go out and, and, and they'll evangelize, they'll share Christ. And, and certainly that's a, it's a wonderful activity. Um, it is a wonderful activity. Um, that is not the church. Um, there's a difference between meeting together, um, which is the body of believers for the sake of worshiping, um, worshiping and being taught the word of God, versus going out and evangelizing um, those who are in the community. Um, certainly evangelizing those in the community is totally biblical. We, we should do that. Um, but it, it is not a replacement uh, for the church. But let's take a look at each one of these uh, major points. So starting with the, this kind of first um, sentence, if you will, it says, We believe that a local church is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant of faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word. So a local church is a congregation of baptized believers. What do we mean by congregation? Yeah, it's just a grouping. 
It's a grouping of people. And in fact, the Greek word for church is ecclesia. And literally, okay, that, that Greek word, I mean, when we say church, we have a very technical meaning behind it. When we think church, we automatically think a Christian gathering, right? I mean, that's typically what we think when we hear the word church. Um, but the Greek word behind it did not originate with that technical understanding. It literally just meant congregation or a gathering of people. Um, and, uh, and, and the literal meaning of ecclesia is called out. They've, they've been called out to come together in, in some sense. And really, it's in uh, Matthew 16. In fact, turn there. Matthew 16. I think Matthew 16, 18. Yeah, Matthew 16, 18. This is really the first time that Jesus uses the word church. All right, so when we think about the start of the church, um, I would argue that the church did not begin until the day of Pentecost. Um, You see that in Acts chapter 2. And Jesus Christ, um, through his ministry, did not mention um, the word ecclesia, the word church, until at this point, Matthew 16, 18. And and the context here will be familiar to you, I'm sure. Um, This is when the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, they had wandered into Caesarea Philippi. This was Gentile territory. Um, Jesus' purpose was for discipleship, um, was to really tend to his disciples and, and, and not at this point to minister to Israel. Verse 13, he asked them, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, um, they reveal that uh, really the people, and we're talking about the people of Israel, they all believe that Jesus Christ is a prophet. You see that in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Um, and then in uh, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was a huge confession. Um, That was a very, very important confession um, on the part of the disciples. At that point, having seen all the miracles, having seen his teaching, having seen really just the general testimony of his ministry here on earth, they they go away and uh, Simon finally confesses that you are the one. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him in verse 17, um, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And that leads to verse 18, which is this monumental statement from Jesus Christ. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will do what? Yeah, I will build my church. Some people argue that the church goes all the way back to the time of Moses. But when you look at this verse, is that past tense or present tense or future tense? It's future. I will build my church. So the idea here is that his church doesn't yet exist, but he will build it. And that kind of ties into our message this morning, doesn't it? You know, we, we saw all those words, all those words being used with, with kind of this analogy of building, of building. And, and Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And by the way, that word for uh, build, it's often the same word used for edify. You know, let's edify one another. Edify and build in the Greek, it's the same word. Um, so the idea is that when you edify another person, you're helping to build that person. You're helping to build that person up. Um, so we see there from there the, the promise that Jesus Christ will build his church. Now, as he says this, the disciples still don't have the technical understanding of that word that we have today. But, but Jesus Christ is making clear that because the word church simply just meant congregation or gathering. But Jesus is saying that I will build my gathering, my congregation. So in other words, this is going to be a congregation that belongs to him. Um, So that's what he means by my church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And we know today that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
right? So we all belong to Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. We belong to him. And this was the kind of the promise before it actually happened that I will build my church. So going back to the statement, a local church is a congregation of baptized believers. Now, why, why baptized believers versus just believers? What do you, what do you think? Yeah, that's, that's like the first step of obedience. In fact, when you go through the book of Acts, it's, you, you almost can't even separate conversion and, and, um, and, and, and baptism. I mean, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And of course, at the start of the chapter, you know, that's when the Holy Spirit comes down and people are speaking in tongues and, and people are just amazed at, at what they're hearing. They're, they're hearing, um, you know, really the, the great works of God being proclaimed in their own language. Um, and uh, then in verse 14, starting in verse 14, that's when Peter stands up and uh, he starts explaining what they're, what they're witnessing around them. Um, he starts explaining what they're witnessing around them. He's saying all this has been prophesied through the prophet Joel. Um, and then he quotes Joel from verses 17 through uh, 21. And then starting in verse 22 is really kind of the start of his sermon. Verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, this is amazing. Um, because what Peter is saying, look, the one that we called our Messiah, for the Jew who was expecting the Messiah to come, they were expecting him to come and to conquer. Come, conquer, set up his kingdom, set up his, his political kingdom, and he should be in charge. How is it that you can say he's a Messiah and yet he's not here, that he was actually crucified, right? Um, but what Peter says here is that this was, um, verse 23, this man delivered over. So he was crucified, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter is basically saying that this, what had happened to Jesus was prophesied from the Old Testament, um, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But it doesn't free them from their responsibility. So while God is sovereign, we would say God is sovereign. He has orchestrated everything to happen the way it's going to happen. And yet man is not free from responsibility because while God had predetermined and had foreknowledge of this event, the end of verse three, Peter says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So Peter's addressing those Jews and saying that you are at fault. Though what happened was according to the predetermined plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, you're the one that takes responsibility for nailing him to the cross, um, giving him over to godless men. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he goes on. And then when you get down to verse 36... Verse 32 says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, talking about, talking about the apostles, the disciples. They're all witnesses to the fact that Jesus was raised. And you go down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <clears throat> verse 37 is where we see the, see the conviction in their response. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the hearts. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and what? Be yeah, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
we live in a different age and a different time. I mean, back then, you know, bodies of water were all around them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost like, um, you remember the, the eunuch that, that meets up with Philip and he happens to be reading Isaiah 53. And then he's like, okay, what's stopping me from being baptized? And boom, they're right at a river and they got baptized right there on the spot. Um, back then, um, they, they had, uh, you know, different kind of access to these kinds of bodies of water and they would get baptized um, immediately. Um, today, you know, we have a baptism, and so when someone someone may believe, but you know, then we've got to schedule. Okay, when's you're going to be your your baptism? It's going to be on a Sunday, and you know, we got to make sure that we fill up the pools. You know, that's what Rick does. He fills up that pool back there for us, and uh, and then we we arrange for for that to happen. But um, but yeah, we we do want the church to be a congregation of baptized believers, and this is really talking about membership. Okay, membership. So we know that anyone who truly proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ is a believer. Amen? Right? We know that. Um, so we, we don't have a problem with that. What, what this is talking about here, the local church is a congregation. This is talking about official membership. We want to ha have our membership consist of those who have been baptized. And the reason, just as is, was mentioned, it's really the first act of obedience. You believe, you're called to be baptized. Does that make sense? So it's a congregation of baptized uh, believers. And by the way, let's go ahead and continue reading on here in Acts 2, because I think this is uh, instructive. Um, let's see, verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as our Lord our God will call to himself. Um, and then when you go down to, let's see, go down to verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Okay, about 3,000 souls. The fact that we have this here, 3,000 souls, what does that tell you about perhaps um, the, the process here? I mean, for, for, for the writer to know that there were 3,000 souls, it means someone was doing what? Counting. 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 Yeah, keeping count. Um, so they knew who came to, came to repentance. And, and the assumption is someone was keeping count. And so this is one of the arguments um, for uh, membership, one of the men, many arguments for membership. You know, the idea that those who were um, repenting were, were actually being kept on an account for. And, um, and back then, I mean, at this point, there were typically churches for each city. I mean, you know, Christianity was new. And so really for each city, you had a primary church that people would congregate, where people would congregate together, or you would have people meeting in house churches. Um, but um, but th there's this idea that that um, those churches, they knew who belonged to that church, you know, whereas today what we have is that sometimes we get people that are church hopping. Right. You know, um, they might go here one week. They might go to Gateway the next week. They might go to Christ Community the next week. They might jump around from from church to church. And one of the um, problems with that, um, one of the struggles with that, I should say, from the point of a pastor or, or a shepherd um, is that um, it's difficult for me to keep an account on them. You know, I mean, um, the book of Hebrews says that us as, as pastors and elders will give an account for those who are in our care. Well, if you're splitting time between this church and that church, I don't know if I'm the one watching over you, if Joe Garcia is the one watching over you, is it, is it uh, Walter Colas out in El Centro? I, I don't know who it is, right? So um, one, of the, uh, one of these steps of membership helps to communicate to us, no, we're committed to this church, and now I know I have responsibility towards those individuals, you know, who are committed to that church. So it says, um, Congregation of Baptized Believers Associated by Covenant of Faith and Fellowship of the Gospel. So Covenant uh, of Faith, I would interpret this just to simply say that they have a profession of faith. 
um, that, that they um, profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They profess to understand the promises of the gospel and, and fellowship of the gospel. Um, let me ask you this. Why is it important for us to have fellowship with fellow believers uh, versus spending time um, in what we might call fellowship with unbelievers? I mean, what, what's, what's the difference? Why, why do we focus on having fellowship with believers versus hanging around with unbelievers? Edification. Edification, right. Um, it, a lot of us may have unbelieving friends, but if you're spending most of your time with unbelievers, you're lacking edification. That person cannot build you up in Christ if that person does not know Christ. That person cannot counsel you with biblical wisdom if they do not believe that the Bible is the true word of God. You know, if they do not have the Holy Spirit that's illuminating their minds to understand um, the scriptures. Now, we should spend time with unbelievers, but what should our focus be with unbelievers? Yeah, sharing Christ, sharing Christ. Um, And I do have um, some... I do have one particular um, old friend from high school. Uh, it goes, uh, we went to El Segundo High School together, um, and uh, we've known each other for decades. Um, at this point, he's um, still not a believer, but we do talk. I mean, we do talk, and I, we bring up um, Christ and, and uh, talk about religious and spiritual matters and, and whatnot. And there are times we might have some casual conversations about basketball and, and sports and, and whatnot. And that's, um, that, that's okay to do that, but um, I don't spend a whole lot of time um, doing that. Um, he, he knows um, where I stand. He knows that, um, that, um, that I, I would call him an unbeliever and that he needs to know Christ. He needs to come to Christ if he's going to have eternal life. He, he would understand that. Um, and I don't, certainly don't spend time with him the way I would spend time with fellow people within the church. You know, so when, it, when we talk about fellowship, there is really no biblical concept of fellowship with those who are not believers in Christ. And so if someone were to watch your life, and maybe this is another way of looking at it, If someone were to make a movie of your life based upon what all of your friends and your neighbors and your family have observed about you, if there was a movie about your life, what would be portrayed? Would it be, you know, in that movie would be portrayed that you enjoyed your time more with unbelievers or that you really enjoyed your time with believers, that that you were really built up by believers, that you were really focused on helping to build up other believers and that in your time with unbelievers, you were focused on helping to bring Christ to them. You know, so you want to be, be wary of what is your testimony to those around you, and you want your testimony to be consistent with, with really the example of Jesus Christ and, and, and the disciples and apostles that, that we have in Scripture. Um, so there, there is no real fellowship with, with unbelievers. We, we spend time with unbelievers to, to bring that gospel, to bring that um, testimony, um, but we also spend time with believers in order to receive that edification and to be recharged. I mean, I know when I'm, if, if for some reason I'm away from the church for more than um, a week or two, um, you ever feel this when you're away from the church that spiritually you're just feeling a little bit more dry? Like, like you're, you're spiritually, you're feeling a little bit, you know, it's just like there's something missing and then you come back to church and it just all comes back and it's like, this is what I need. You, you know, the, the gathering of church um, is, is a grace of God upon us. This is where we get our spiritual refreshment from one another. You know, coming to a place to worship the Lord, to see our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So all, all that is, is very important. So we're associated by a covenant of faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ. And um, the ordinances, I mean, this is really traditions, practices of the church. And I would say there is two primary ordinances of Christ. One is baptism. And what's the other? Yeah, the Lord's table. 
the Lord's table. You know, we, we take the Lord's table in remembrance of him. We'll talk about that a little bit later. That's one of the later um, articles. Um, so we observe the ordinances of Christ um, governed by his laws. Okay, this is interesting. Governed by his laws. Um, what will we describe as the law of Christ? Uh, it says his laws. I mean, we wouldn't go back to the Ten Commandments, would we? Or would we? Why not? Okay, that, that's one response. Okay, well, get, get, who else, who else uh, has an opinion on this? What's that? It's all one. It's all one. What do you mean by that? It's connected. I mean, because Christ said he didn't come to do away with the Ten Commandments and do away with the law, right. but to fulfill it. Yeah, he came to fulfill the law. Right, Not right. Not to put it away. Well, let's, let's think about that for a moment, because when we take a look at Ephesians, Ephesians uh, 2. Yeah, 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 it is, it is isn't it? Um, and I, I talked about this last week, but Ephesians 2 uh, starting in verse 14, Ephesians 2, 14. Because what you said, Sarah, is, is correct, that he came to fulfill the law, but there's another aspect to this. Ephesians 2, 14, uh, Paul says this, uh, For he, talking about Christ, he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now he's talking about the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. By abolishing, okay, so by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Okay, what is that enmity? Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So we see there that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, and the enmity is identified as the law of commandments contained in ordinances, which would point back to the Mosaic law. Um, so, okay, did he fulfill the law or did he abolish the law? Both. Yeah, he did both. He had to fulfill the law um, in order to bring about the new law, the new covenant. And in fact, what might be helpful is an Old Testament reference. Go to um, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah says this, and Jeremiah recognized he's the last prophet in Israel before the exile is complete. Um, he, he is the last one calling for Israel to repent um, before the exile to Babylon is, is made complete. So he, he is um, living in dark times, but here he has a prophecy about the future. Despite the fact that Israel fails to repent, verse 31 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. So what we see in verses 31, 32, he's giving a promise of a new covenant. And he's saying this is not like the old covenant. Now, now there's multiple covenants in the Old Testament. Which old covenant is being referred to here? Because verse 32 says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, it's the Mosaic, because that, that's referring back to the time of Moses, right? So the idea is that this new covenant is not like the old covenant. But there is also implied here that the new covenant is going to replace that old covenant. Um, and verse 33 um, talks about really the difference. So by saying that this new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant, 
And what's amazing, this is this is beautiful here. I mean, when you, when you think, how's the new covenant going to be different from the old? Well, the way that the Lord describes the old is that the old was broken. Okay, the implication is that this new one can't be broken. This old one, your father's broke. This new one cannot be broken. And I, and I love how that's going to be made possible. Verse 33, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So there's this idea that this new covenant includes a regenerated heart, where the heart is going to be motivated to obedience. Now this, we have to think about this carefully. So the requirements of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law was abolished in this way because the Mosaic law, the law of Moses demanded perfection. All right. We, we know that from the, um, from, from Jesus sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters five through seven. In fact, Matthew five forty eight. you don't have to go there, but I'll just read that for you. Matthew five forty eight, And you'll remember in chapter five, this is where, where Jesus is saying that, uh, you know, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you know, you have committed adultery in the heart. You have heard it said that you shall not um, kill or you shall not murder. But I tell you that even if you're angry in the heart, you know, you, you have committed murder of the heart. And at the end of chapter five, verse 48, he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Anyone here perfect? Yeah. You know what? People listening to this message from Jesus Christ, they would have been thinking the same thing. Wait a second. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. These are impossibly high standards that you are setting for us, Jesus. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus wants you to understand about the Mosaic Law. The standard is far above anything that you could ever possibly meet. You are not perfect. So when we say the law is abolished, you are no longer judged or condemned by the law. In fact, last week when we looked at justification, that was kind of the idea of justification. Look at that again. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans three twenty-one through 26 and actually even going a little bit earlier, starting in verse 19, Romans three nineteen. What does Paul say? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he says no flesh will be justified. And remember that word for justified is the idea that no one will be declared innocent. No one will be declared righteous according to the law. No one can be found righteous except for one. Who is that one? Yeah, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the only one that can be found righteous. And in verse 21, but now apart from the law of righteousness, which is the Mosaic law, um, apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested, uh, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's saying that previously the righteousness of God was made manifest to us through the law, which holds us to a perfect standard. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested in a second way, which is through Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ came and he was the only one that could live a perfectly righteous life. That was the second manifestation. And Jesus Christ, because he lived a perfect life, could then offer himself up as a sacrifice to God to pay for all the sins of those who would believe in him. That, that's the gospel. You know, that, that's the beauty of the gospel. So now it's no longer the perfection of the law, but it's now the perfection of Jesus Christ that gets you into heaven because we can never obey it perfectly ourselves. So in one sense, 
Jesus is correct by saying, I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. Because the law could not be abolished until he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it by being the only perfect man under the Mosaic law. He fulfilled it by being the only perfect sacrifice under the law. And by being the perfect sacrifice, he brought the law to an end because now all the demandments of the law upon us fell upon Jesus Christ at the cross. What a blessed, blessed truth, right? And now what we have ushered in is the new covenant. We, we have um, the, the new law of, of Jesus Christ. Now... What is the law of Christ? How do we know what the law of Christ is? So what do we obey now? So if we're not obeying the Ten Commandments, what do we obey now? How do we know what to do? Well, Jesus himself said that the law was summed up in two points. Yeah. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, yeah. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so the, so the law is summarized in two points. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but also the New Te- Testament is filled with commands to us as believers, isn't it? Yeah, it's filled, filled with commands to us as believers. Now, here's what's interesting. You look at the Ten Commandments. Nine of them are actually repeated in the New Testament. There's only one that's not specifically repeated. What is that? Yeah, Sabbath. Yeah, Sabbath. So Sabbath was that, um, that you will come together. You will rest on the seventh day. And the assumption is that on the seventh day of rest, you're also worshiping. But really, um, the testimony of the early Christian church, and, and we believe from, from various references that people ended up meeting Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, ended up meeting on the first day of the week rather than the seventh day of the week. Now, the seventh day had been established by God. That was the Sabbath. Um, the first day, what was the significance of the first day of the week? That was the resurrection. The resurrection. So the church started to gather together because when we gather together, we remember the resurrection of Christ. And in fact, when you take communion... Part of that communion is remembering that Christ was resurrected on that first day. He not only died, but he was raised up. He died for the church, and as he was raised up, so will the church also be raised up. <clears throat> so going back to this statement, um, you know, believers uh, were associated by the covenant of faith, the fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ. We talked about that. That's baptism and the Lord's table. Governed by his laws, which you, you can find from the New Testament and exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his words. word. So the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, that too we learn from the New Testament. That The gifts, I would take this as referring to the spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that's, um, as Christians, um, we want to be able to serve and, and to be able to discover in our service what, what those gifts are. Um, I, I mentioned this a little bit this morning, but in terms of your spiritual gift, there's a lot of people today that go online, they'll take little quizzes. Um, you know, people say, oh, read this book and take this uh, survey, and then it's going to tell you what the, those gifts are. Well, I'll tell you that those quizzes and those surveys are unbiblical because it never says in the Bible that you're supposed to go through some sort of questionnaire. You know what it says in the Bible? That you're supposed to serve and that in your service, in your service, your gift will be revealed to you. Um, so I think you'll, you'll learn through your gifts. In fact, I remember the first time, not um, one of the first times I talked to my wife on the phone, we had met on eHarmony, so we were an internet couple, and uh, we, we talked on the phone, and she was telling me that at the church that she was attending, which was in Bakersfield, she was trying to figure out where to serve, and she was waiting for God to give her direction on where to serve. She knew that there was need in the nursery. She knew there was need in the nursery, and she was waiting for God to reveal to her that whether she should serve there or not. And when I was talking to her, I said, don't wait, just serve. And she's like, well, what if that's not my gifting? I'm like, it doesn't really matter. 
You know, because if you know that there's a need and you know you can fill it, then the best thing you can do is fill it. If you find out later that that's not your gifting, God's not going to rebuke you for saying, how dare you serve when that wasn't your gifting? That's not, that's not what God's going to do. You know, what, what God wants is people who are just willing to serve. You know, so what I tell people is that you, if you want to learn your gifting, just serve. You know, look for an opening and serve. And you'll find out in the process whether that's really for you or not. You know, Awana, I mean, obviously we got Clark Small um, now acting as the Awana commander. Brett Hauser did it one year. And, and we all know Brett Hauser. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. He knows the kids. He's great with kids. But, you know, I, when I was talking to him, he said, you know, he did that. He, he, he was an Awana commander for one year. And he said, that just wasn't for me. Well, praise God, he was willing to sacrifice himself for that year and, and fulfill that role, right? I mean, so he did it for a year, and that's a wonderful service. That, that's a marvelous service. You know, and he discovered through it that, you know, that wasn't where God had called him to be. But God's not going to rebuke him for serving as a WANA commander for a year. You know, that, that's a blessing unto the Lord that he was willing to serve, right? So the encouragement is uh, for us to, to serve. Um, second uh, point here, that it's officers, our pastors, um, it's officers are pastors and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are clearly defined in the scriptures. Um, now, there, there's, um, there's an office here that's not being mentioned, and that's the office of elder. All right? So what, what, the, what we do at this church, we equate the pastor with the elder. Um, so you can say pastor slash elder plus the deacons. Those are the offices of the church. And when we say office, you, you know, people, this is where people get kind of um, tied up. In fact, some churches, they, they hate this idea of status and titles so much that they don't even want to call anyone pastors or deacons or elders. They, they refuse to use the title, um, which is, okay, why would you refuse to use the title? Well, we don't want there to be an implication that one is better than the other and whatnot. Okay, but that's biblical, right? I mean, elders, overseers, pastors, deacons, that's actually biblical. So, I mean, we, you know, sometimes we, we, we're so desperate to try to rid ourselves of structure that we start going to biblical extremes to get ourselves away from it. And, and sometimes people associate this with like um, corporate structure. When you see corporations, you know, there's this hierarchy and all that. And, and, and people reject that. And, and they think the church is becoming corporate by, by sticking to kind of these hierarchies and offices. Well, no, the, God actually gives us that hierarchy and structure. And God, you know, the scriptures say God is a God of order. God is not a God of chaos. Um, hierarchy is there in order to establish order. Order is a good thing. But there are some people that um, are very almost allergic to order, like they, they think it's holy not to have order. Um, but uh, the officers, um, the, the offices of the, the church are, are made uh, pretty clear. Um, so and talks here about qualifications, claims, and duties are clearly defined in the scriptures. Um, that, that is true. Um, and, you know, and it's funny, there's no, you know, except for... Um, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, um, you, you don't find like a, a full spec sheet um, on this. You, you kind of learn this from examples and statements that are made throughout. But in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, you have the qualifications defined of both um, elders as well as, as deacons. And I'll tell you this, the biblically, um, elders and deacons, the, if you looked at the qualifications and compared them one by one, they are identical with one critical difference. Do you know what that critical difference is? Teaching, teaching. An elder is to be able to teach. An elder is to be able to teach. And, um, and I think what's, um, what's kind of understood there, because it, it talks about how um, both deacons and elders are to be beyond reproach, right? They're to be a husband of, of one woman, and, and there's all these characteristics that, that need to be there. You know, I think implied by all those descriptions, too, is that this is not someone that's a brand new believer, 
Okay, because you, you can't establish those characteristics of a person unless you've seen the testimony of that person for some period of time. And, and I know when I came here for the candidating process, there was, you know, there was a series of phone calls that was made to my old church. Hey, tell us about this guy. You, you know, is he in good standing? And, uh, and, and it was funny, I was talking to David Wetjen because the first few weeks, you know, we had people from my old church come and visit us here at Western Avenue. And, uh, and, and David was talking about how that was an encouragement to him that, that, that you weren't just some rascal that just came out of here out of nowhere, but people actually came up and, and they were supportive, you know, of you. But um, yeah, so I mean, you want to know that, that, that the person has a testimony of faithfulness. You know, it's not just a brand new convert where, you know, anyone can kind of show the fruits over a very brief time. The real test is, you know, over a period of time. So there's some discernment that's, uh, that's involved in that. And then next, uh, the true mission of the church. The true mission of the church is the edification. And remember what I told you in the Greek, the word edifies the same word for what? Built. Built. It's the building. It's the edification of the saints and the faithful witnessing about Christ to all men as we have opportunity. So it's twofold. We have a duty to those inside the church and we have a duty to those outside the church. Okay, our duty to those inside the church is that we edify one another, we build up one another. Obviously, that was um, a big part of my message this morning. Uh, but we have a duty outside the church, which is to look for opportunities to share Christ and to evangelize. Um, so those are the, that's the mission of the church. And then the next statement, we hold that the local church has the absolute right of self-government, free from the interference of any hierarchy, of any individual or organization, and that the one and only superintendent is Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, so when I came here during the candidating process, I found out that this is a GARB church, G-A-R-B, right? G-R-B, General Association of Regular Baptists. General Association of Regular Baptists. And in the process of meeting with the deacons, one of my questions to them is, do we have any, um, do we have any obligations to them? In, in other words, do they make any decisions for us? And then they told me, no, it's just an association of like-minded churches. So GARB, we have um, state representative Bruce McLean who comes and visits us um, once in a while, and, and that's always a blessing to, to be able to see him. Um, we have this association that, that we're a part of, um, but they have no um, jurisdiction over us. They can't come to us and say, no, you guys did this, and instead you need to do that, right? Um, now, if we start to change our doctrines and our beliefs so much that we no longer align with them, they can say, okay, you, you really can't be a part of GARB because you're, you know, you're, you're starting to change your doctrines. They fully have a right to do that, but they can't tell us what to do and what not to do. And that was important to me. I wanted to make sure that there wasn't another body outside of this church that was, that, that was making decisions, spiritual decisions, on behalf of uh, this church. Now, when we think back to the um, New Testament, um, someone could make the argument, well, the Apostle Paul, didn't the Apostle Paul write all these letters to all the different churches making corrections and whatnot? Isn't that example an example of, of an outside authority making corrections? What do you guys think? Yeah, he, he's the one that founded those churches. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he, he's, he was the, the one that helped found the church. He's the one that brought them to salvation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what he was advising them on, it wasn't a matter of church government. It's that you guys are in sin. You know, you, you guys are buying into a false gospel. You guys are buying into lies and this and that. And so when he rebuked them, and especially the church at Corinth, 
you know, he, you know, he was correcting the fact that believers were taking believers, other believers to, to court, you know, to, to sue one another. He's like, believers don't do that. You know, so he was correcting a lot of these um, really just worldly behavior of the church, not so much how they were governing themselves. Um, in fact, but when he got to talking about the spiritual gifts, you know, that's when he says God is a God of order. Look, if you're going to speak tongues, do it in order. If you're going to do prophecy, do it in order. Make sure that you're not just talking over one another. Make sure that there's interpretation. Make sure that there's understanding. In fact, um, one of the abuses of really kind of the charismatic Pentecostal church today is that there is a lot of just random speaking in tongues that no one understands. You know, there, there, is, there is a lot of unchecked behavior within the church. Sometimes you, you look up on YouTube and you'll just see just really strange behavior at their Sunday services where, and I kid you not, and I, I recognize these are the extremes, where some people are like on the floor rolling around in laughter. Some are like barking like dogs. And, and, and they're saying that this is them being filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that this is the, the work of the Holy Spirit. But when you look at the letter from Paul, Paul says, no, that, you, when you gather together, the, the worship needs to be ordered. And you need to be able to understand what each other says. I mean, Paul even says, look, I'm thankful that I speak in tongue more than all of you. And yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind than a thousand in tongue. And why? Because when he speaks with his mind, he's actually building up the people who hear it. You know, and, and it's amazing when you go through 1 Corinthians 14, just do a little exercise. Go through that chapter and look at how many times you see the word build or edify it's constant it's just it's everywhere it's it shows up dozens of times um in that chapter so that's that's paul's focus within the church he wants the church to be able to build one another up to edify one another so the um the, the local church has the absolute right of self-government in fact turn with me to titus one Titus uh, chapter 1. So this is uh, one of the letters that Paul wrote uh, with regards to um, establishing churches. Um, Titus was a part of his, uh, his team. And when you go to Titus chapter 1 and look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Titus 1, 5. Paul writes this. For this reason... I left you in Crete. Uh, Crete was an island, uh, a part of Greece, just off the mainland of Greece. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. Now, why is Paul having Titus appoint elders? It's for this exact reason, so that they can govern themselves. So that with every church body, you have a person who is acting, at least one person who is acting as an overseer for the flock. Um, and the idea is that that church is governing themselves, that they're, they, they, once they have an elder, they can operate independently. And in fact, of, of all the churches, I mean, think about all the letters that Paul wrote. Which church had the most problems? Say it out loud. Corinth. Yeah, I mean, without question. You, you go through the letter of Corinth. That's the letter that had the absolute most problems in terms of, you know, what Paul was addressing. And, and one of the issues in Corinth, and I don't know if you realize this, is that as far as we can see, there was no elder there. I mean, think about this. Go, go to 1 Corinthians 1, and I'll, and I'll show you this. 
Yeah, and there were more letters that he wrote that, that we, don't, we don't have to, to Corinth. We know that there, there has to be at least four letters that he wrote to this church. Um, because 1 Corinthians makes reference to a letter, and 2 Corinthians make reference to a letter that was different than 1 Corinthians. So we, we knew that, know that there was at least four um, letters. But take a look at uh, chapter 1, um, starting in verse 10. You know, and by the way, this is so instructive, and this fits perfectly with the message uh, from this morning. There are so many issues in Corinth, all right? I mean, there, there was people that were sent from a believer named Chloe who, who went to Paul and, and brought all these questions from the Corinthian church, saying, hey, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Can you address this? Can you help correct this? And, and you know what? Paul receives this letter. He actually doesn't even start addressing the letter, I think, until chapter 6. The first five chapters, he's wanting to address things that he's hearing going on. Um, there in, in the church. And the very first issue he wants to address, because this is most important to Paul, the very, of all the issues going on in Corinth, you know what's the very first issue he wants to address? Look at verse 10, because verses 1 through 9 is really kind of this opening thanksgiving and prayer and whatnot. Verse 10, he says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no what? divisions among you and that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. You know what he was calling for is unity. There is no unity in your church. You know, which by the way, I mean, when, when we think about the abuses of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, they often refer to the letter of Corinth as kind of their guideline. Well, one thing that they forget is that Corinth was, was just getting torn apart by disunity. You know, so and, and we, we don't want to follow the practices of Corinth. Rather, we want to follow what Paul tells us to do. But verse 11, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And then look at verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. OK, because some of them have been instructed by Paul. So they're saying, I am of Paul. Another is saying, I am of Apollos. Another says, I of Cephas. And another says, I of Christ. Now, obviously we all want to be of Christ, right? But the point here is that even those who are saying, well, I am of Christ, they were even dividing themselves from the others instead of helping to bring correction, right? So people were saying, claiming to follow numerous different people. Now, if we look at these individuals, Paul obviously wasn't there. He was writing this letter to them. Apollos is not there because when you get to the end of this letter, Paul even says that he tried to ask Apollos to come, but Apollos couldn't come. He was not willing to come at this time. It says that, I think, in the final chapter. So we know Apollos is not there. Certainly Cephas, that's Peter. Peter is not there. And, of course, Jesus Christ is up in heaven. Um, so as far as I know, there's actually no known leader here. And so I believe one of the reasons why the gift of prophecy was so needed at Corinth is because they had no known leader. When they come together, they needed someone to be able to bring forth the word of God. And so they had um, people with the gift of prophecy. Uh, but I believe that when Paul is there, or if he, if he had Paul, Apollos go there, that a lot of these issues would go by the wayside because now you've got someone with, with authority for, for them to, to follow. But verse 13, he says, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So Paul is just saying, making this point that, look, there, there should be no divisions. You know, and uh, for those of you who are saying you're, you're of me, well, you weren't baptized in my name. You know, and basically the point he's making is that all of you are of Christ. And by the way, this is, you know, this is still a rebuke to those that say, well, I'm of Christ, because they're still, once again, they're not seeking to unite with doctrine. What they should have said is that, look, all of us are of Christ. 
and that people like Apollos and Cephas and, and Paul, they're servants. They're, they're servants. They're people that, that have been appointed by God to, to help lead us, but we all belong to Christ. That would have been the right way to go about rather than just separating themselves off. Okay, you can be a Paul, you can be a Cephas, you can be a Apollos, but I'm of Christ, right? Instead, we're, we're all of Christ. So that was, um, that was Paul's point there. So the, um, we hold that the local church has absolute right of self-government, free from interference of any hierarchy, any individuals or organizations, and that the only superintendent is Christ through the Holy Spirit. And I think we've been seeing that in Ephesians pretty clearly, that the head of the church is Christ, that, that he is the one that ultimately leads the church. So I know, I, I understand what people mean when they say to me, well, this is your church, Pastor. Okay, well, I get that, but I'm, I'm really just kind of the under-shepherd, right? Jesus Christ is the shepherd. You know, I'm, I'm the one just acting on his behalf based upon what I see in the scriptures. My role, my job is really just to do what Jesus Christ has commanded me to do within the scriptures. You know, and it's, um, in many ways, it's, it's hard because obviously there, there's a lot of complications that happen with human relationships and things that come up. But in terms of understanding from the scriptures what to do, it's actually not that hard. You know, it's, it's, it's relatively easy. And then, what's up? Sure, sure, sure. Just, just the last statement that you made. It's the human beings that are the difficult ones. Not the word. Yeah, I, well, you know, and we, look, we, we see this in our heart, don't we? I mean, when we look at the scripture, we see the commandments of God. Um, knowing what the right thing to do is easy. It really is. It's simple. But even for ourselves, it's obeying it that's hard because it's, it's our heart that desires to disobey, Right. You know, so, so in other words, knowing what the right thing to do is easy, actually doing it can be very hard, you know, because we often want to do things our way. So, yeah, it's the human condition. I mean, myself included, you know, so, I mean, we as, uh, we as humans, because of our, you know, you know we, we, still, we still have the old man in the flesh that we're carrying around with us. Um, we're not perfectly sanctified. We know that's a process that's going on. But until then, I mean, there, look, there are divisions that happen. You know, one of the reasons why unity has to be emphasized over and over again, because even those who are truly um, saved by God, we still fall into the ways of the flesh and we start to squabble with one another. We start to divide over one another and we have to be constantly reminded to be in unity, which means to kind of die to ourselves, to be humbled, um, to recognize that. Look, we have the greatest gift from God, which is salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else, really, in light of that salvation, everything else should be easy. You know, but, uh, but it's a daily struggle. Um, Galatians 5, 16, and 17 talks about the war between the flesh and the spirit, right? That's being waged daily within you. They're, they're at war with one another so that you may not do the things that you want to do. Okay, so continuing on here, it says it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other in contending for the furtherance of the gospel. It is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with one another in contending um, for the furtherance of the gospel. We're going a little over time, but since this morning's message was a little shorter, I'm going to add a little bit to the evening. Is that okay? So that's a little bit of a trade-off, right? Yeah, yeah. The morning message made shorter. I'm going to make the evening message a little bit longer. That's, that's just the way it works. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> but but you're being edified. I mean, this is right. I mean, this is this is edifying. you guys love this. I know you guys love this, right? <clears throat> All right. So it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other in contending for the furtherance of the gospel. Can you think of an example of that? Churches co- cooperating with one another. Day of prayer. Yeah, prayer. Yeah, Paul calls for us often to be praying in prayer for all the saints, right? 
What else? Mission work. Uh, mission work. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because because uh, you know the the nature of mission work is that you're going to start multiple churches, right? You're you're going to to help uh, start multiple churches, going to various areas. That's what Paul did. You know, in each uh, missionary journey, especially those first two missionary journeys, he established multiple churches in in multiple areas. Um, but but you know, Paul also collected an offering from the churches for the uh, saints in Jerusalem. Did you know that? Yeah, I mean, he was called to do that. He was called to, to collect money so that we can help support the saints in Jerusalem. By the way, this is instructive for us. This is instructive for us. Um, because, you know, when we think about the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God and Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. Even within that second commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself, there is a priority of taking care of fellow saints. Because what Paul was doing, he was collecting money for fellow saints who were poor in Jerusalem, not for the poor in general in Jerusalem. You see the difference? He didn't look at all the poor in Jerusalem saying, we need to help all the poor. He said, no, we're, we need to help the saints in Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus Christ said that, that they will know that you are mine by your love for one another. We need to take care of one another first and foremost. It doesn't mean that we don't show mercy towards, um, towards, towards those outside the body, those who are poor outside the body. But recognize we don't do that at the expense of helping those who are in need within the church. You know, so we need to make sure we take care of our own first and foremost. But Paul would take a, a gathering. In fact, he mentioned that in 2 Corinthians. He talked about how the church at Macedon, which was Philippi, Macedonia, you had the church of Philippi there. He, he had been collecting money from them, and, and now he was coming to Corinth to collect money from them. Um, Achaia also, and then he would bring it, um, bring it to Jerusalem um, for their needs. So you see an example of there of churches cooperating one, with one another. Um, Linda. Also, when we were looking for a pastor, we had other churches giving us to come fill our pulpit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, um, and, and, and even when I was out, um, I, I had someone from Grace Community Church come here and, you know, John, uh, John Bowers, um, he came and preached uh, one Sunday. So yeah, that's an example of that, that partnership as well. Bill Shannon was out here that, uh, that first Sunday, my first official Sunday here. Um, so I mean, by way of you getting me, we're now partners with, uh, with John MacArthur's church up in Sun Valley. So we're, you know, and that's, in fact, that's how Humbert and Marlene found this church. They listened to the Grace to You ministry. They went onto the Grace to You website. They'd been looking, okay, is there a Grace to You approved church here in the valley? They'd been checking and checking and checking, and there was none for a long time. And now there's two. There's this one, and there's the one in uh, Holtville, um, Cornerstone. It's uh, being pastored by Hayden Norris. He's a fellow graduate of the same seminary. But what's interesting is that this church is also... There are people who've grown up in this church that are now tightly connected to the seminary I was trained at. Um, so we've got uh, Jay Flowers. Jay Flowers um, grew up here, and uh, he actually works for Grace to You. You know, so John MacArthur's radio broadcast. He actually works for the radio, radio station. He's one of the um, executives there. Um, we've got uh, Mark Tatlock. Uh, Mark Tatlock. His father was an associate pastor here at one time. Uh, Mark Tatlock is um, is actually now one of the global representatives of really kind of the Masters Academy International. He travels around the world all the time, um, proclaiming missions and uh, and and uh, in fact, we went to, when we when Alice first came to Grace Community Church, we attended a an adoption conference. You know, kind of the ministry of adoption, adopting kids and whatnot. Mark Tatlock was the one that was putting this on. So he had a heart for adoption. He had a heart for missions. And then I found out that his mother, his mother's maiden name is Cheatwood, and. Uh, we know the Cheatwood family for the same thing, right? Missions and, and, and adoption. So that's, uh, that, that's a wonderful blessing there. And the third person, I just discovered this this past week. There used to be a youth pastor here by the name of Richard Bargus. Yes. 
Richard Vargas. Richard Vargas was a youth pastor here. He got started in ministry here. He left here in order to attend the same seminary that I just came from. And he is now one of the instructors at that seminary. He actually teaches preaching to Spanish-speaking students. Um, He's got a fruitful ministry um, out there. So, I mean, talk about partnership. It's not only that we have partnership with uh, kind of the seminary and and the church that I came from, but we have partnership that this church, without realizing it, has actually sent people up that way as well. So that's um, that's, that's a wonderful blessing. Um, So we, we do see it that is scriptural for churches to cooperate one with one another. Each church is the sole judge and measure and method of its cooperation. Um, that's just local government and all matters of membership, polity, government, discipline, and benevolence. The will of the local church is final. Um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and just leave it at that. Any other comments or questions? All right. Let's go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. Thank you for your patience.